When I talk to people about grief, I really normalize the fact that I have not talked to a single person who is grieving, who doesn't have some regret, some self-blame. And th this can be everything from, I wish we had taken that last trip to, I didn't get to say goodbye or I yelled at him the last time I saw him. Exactly. Am I sure they were getting the best care they could have gotten? I mean, all, all sorts of things. Hey friends, Lisa Kiefhofer here, host of this podcast, Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. In case you're new to the show, yes, this is a podcast all about grief. It's a show that explores the expansiveness and the pervasiveness of grief in all of our lives because, let's face it, 100% of us experience grief multiple times in our lives. I've certainly witnessed it time and time again in my career as a social worker and of course in my personal life too, with the most significant loss being my husband in 2011. And yet individually and collectively, boy, are we grief illiterate. And that is causing us all so much harm. So I'm on a mission to reimagine grief, one conversation at a time. I'm glad you're joining me. Today's episode is brought to you by Vita Health. It's no secret the past couple of years have put a serious strain on people's mental health, but meeting with a therapist in their office can be expensive and hard to schedule. With Vita Health, you can get the care you need from the comfort of your home at an affordable cost. Vita Health, now an in-network mental health provider with Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Illinois, lets people get the mental health care they need when, where, and how they need it. So visit vita.com forward slash BCBSIL to learn more. That's V-I-D-A dot com slash B-C-B-S-I-L. Vita, healthcare designed for the body and mind. In today's episode, my guest, Dr. Lizzie Cleary, is bright and warm and engaging, and her training in psychology and work in the fields of oncology meant we spent some time exploring the professional-born wisdom on the topics of grief and loss and post-traumatic growth. She currently serves as a senior psychologist and clinical supervisor at the Sims Mann UCLA Center for Integrative Oncology. But our conversation begins with a much more personal experience of loss, one that happened at the time Lizzie was studying to be a psychologist. Lizzie's mom, Sylvia, wow, she sounds like she was a trailblazer. And just as Lizzie was launching her own career in psychology, Sylvia died while out on her kayak in one of her favorite places to be. That was 2005. Lizzie and her family began grieving this as an accidental death only to discover nearly four years later, based on the finally completed autopsy report, that she had in fact died by suicide. While Lizzie doesn't go into the details about her death, I appreciated the way she illuminated the unique aspects of grieving this type of death and the added layer of complexity this new information brought forth. Her warmth and wisdom and insight taught me so much throughout our conversation I just know you're going to learn so much too. 
Lizzie, thank you so much for joining me on Grief is a Sneaky Bitch today. I've been looking forward to this conversation for quite some time. Me too. Really been looking forward to it. Yeah. So Lizzie and I met because of a mutual friend, Marissa Renee Lee. Many of you listeners probably heard her episode, Grief is Love. And as we got to know each other, she said, you really need to know this friend of mine, Dr. Lizzie Cleary. And you and I connected. And I feel like could talk for 2,000 hours on the topics of grief and loss. So I'm really looking forward to diving in both to your personal experiences with grief of course, but then also the insights you've gleaned from your work. So we'll get into that a little bit. But of course, we'll start where we start all of my conversations on the show. And that's just an invitation to think back to your earliest memory of grief as a child, and in particular, thinking about what you saw around you in terms of how the adults were modeling grief and what you think that taught you for the grief that you experienced later in your life. So the first example I can remember, I was probably in second or third grade. My mom was an elementary school teacher. And as an after-school activity, one of her fellow teachers would have students over to her house and we would do sewing and needle pointing. Seems a little bit antiquated now, but we had (laughs) fun with it. My sister's one year younger than me, so we were both over doing that together And I remember my mom came to pick us up and she walked into the home and immediately I noticed that she had been crying, which was something that I had very rarely seen before. She walked over to this other teacher and they were whispering, speaking in hushed tones. My sister and I got our backpacks, followed her out to the car, got our seatbelts on in silence. And then she turned to us and shared that One of her closest friends, who I think was 40 at the time, had very unexpectedly died in a ski accident. This was a friend who had traveled the world, lived a really big, rich life, and her death was very much unexpected. So my mom shared this with us. I remember we had a very silent car ride back home, and then I'm not sure if we ever spoke about it again. And I think I learned from that that grief was modeled to me as something that was private, that was really personal, that was quiet, that tragedy can happen. And when it does, it's best not to talk about it, explore it, be curious about it. And it's interesting because my mom, she was an educator. She did a lot of work in child development read a lot in the area. And I really believe that she was doing what she thought was best for us and what she thought was best for children generally. But it's so striking how different that approach is to certainly in my line of work, certainly how we guide parents to talk about grief and loss with their children, death and dying, certainly very different from what I've tried to model with my children But again, I I think for the times and and probably what she was reading, what she had been taught, I I think it was very much in line with what she thought was best. Yeah. Wow. I really appreciate you sharing that story. And I think we're of a similar generation, although I'm guessing I'm a bit older. But I think to your point is our parents 
are enacting grief practices and modeling grief with the best knowledge they had at the time. And at that time in that era, I mean, in general, kids were sort of supposed to be seen and not heard. And, you know, like just in general, the ways in which we adults interacted with kids was just so globally different. And then when it comes to hard things and grief, I think there was sort of a protection notion that parents generally have and still have. And so, yeah, I just appreciate that because I asked this question, of course, of all my guests. I teach loss and grief at University of Texas. I ask my students to think about this and reflect on this. And I'm always qualifying, don't go home and now tell your parents what a bad job they did teaching you grief. It's just we all do the best we can, which is why I'm doing this work, which is why I know you do work around this area too, which is to make visible these grief beliefs and practices we have that we don't even necessarily know we're passing along to somebody else. And I think culturally, I mean, our thinking really, it evolves with time. I think our knowledge, our understanding of it grows. And so again, what was the advice that was given 30 years ago, I I think is just different from our our understanding of, you know, certainly for kids, right? Like the idea that for children, what can be most, most scary is kind of not having the full picture or feeling like there's something unknown or, or secrets that are there. And then assuming it's maybe there, you know, like that they are contributing to whatever this energy is in the room. Yes, yeah. yes yeah, exactly. Absolutely. And I always say, I mean, I do this work for a living. And when I lost my husband, I wasn't specifically doing grief work. I was a social worker. I'm sure I didn't handle it. And I hope someday when my daughter is grown and, well, she is grown now, 18, but if and when she decides to have kids, that she's going to do it even better than I did and look back and say, like, oh, yes. my mom did not handle that so well. <laughs> yes. And I think that's kind of the lessons that we learn in our growth sort of in our own lifetimes, but then across generations. But we can't grow unless we do what you and I are doing here today and what I try to do through all my work, which is make visible how things are, explore what are the benefits and the harms of what we're doing, how we're enacting our grief beliefs, and then make some really conscious choices about how to change and adapt that so that we're all served a little bit better by that. Yeah. So I know, and I don't know the timeline here, so you can help us come together. I know, again, we're going to talk about your work in the fields of oncology and psychiatry and psychology, but I know you ended up experiencing a tremendous loss of your own, the death of your mom. Before you tell us a little bit about that, did that happen before or after you ended up pursuing your professional degree? I can't remember. It was kind of in the midst, or in the midst to be okay. honest. Exactly. Yeah. So I had majored undergrad in psychology. I took a research position as a research assistant out of college. And I was kind of getting my graduate school applications together. Together uh, at when that she time. died. Yeah. Yes. So, so, remind me your mom's name? Sylvia. Sylvia. Okay. Can you tell us a little bit about Sylvia? First of all, just her personality in life, but also really what came to be how she passed. And as I talked about in the top of the show, that some of this conversation is going to be about how she passed, which is death by suicide. So just another reminder that I think it's important that we have these conversations. And I want to just pause for a minute. And if you're a listener who isn't ready to hear conversations about that, you can just hit pause for a moment or or fast forward. But yeah, I really think it's important we have these conversations. So I'd love to hear a little bit about Sylvia too in her life and her personality and then what sort of unfolded for you. Yes. So my mom taught elementary school science, nursery through third grade. She was a big environmentalist, lover of the outdoors. 
In her free time, she would tag monarch butterflies to understand their migratory patterns. She volunteered doing water quality monitoring, understanding the, the health of nearby streams and rivers. She was really nurturing. She had four brothers, three of them younger than her, always loved spending time with children. She went to graduate school to study biological anthropology and spent several years in India and in Kenya doing field work with primates. Wow. Wow. Yeah, she was six feet tall, very athletic, kind of an outdoors woman. And she was both quiet always would choose a small group over a large group and, you know, definitely a, a perfectionist as well. She was smart and hardworking and expected that of people in her life as well. Yeah. Yeah. So there you were sort of launching into your own career. And it sounds like your mom sort of modeled and paved the way for pursuing your passions, both in education, but also in the work that you do. So you were probably in your early mid-20s, maybe around this time? Yes. Yeah. So I, I had just graduated college. So I was 22, moving into the fall, turned 23. And then my mom died November of 2005. She died in what was first to be understood as an accidental drowning. She was out kayaking. She was actually writing a book about kayaking in the Washington, D.C. area, which is where I grew up. And so, yeah, didn't come home after one of her kayaking trips and eventually was found. And her death was ruled accidental. There were, you know, a lot of thoughts in our in our mind. She was a very strong swimmer in great health. So, you know, there were questions of did she have a heart attack, an aneurysm? What was there some kind of kind of looking for an explanation? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And it really wasn't until almost four years later, once we obtained a full autopsy report, that we came to to understand her death as suicide. Okay. Well, I'd love to talk a little bit in detail about that shift, both, of course, the, with the information, but then how that shifted your grief. But in those intervening years, when you thought it was an accident, how were you and the rest of your family grieving, grappling with that, trying to maybe make meaning or not? What were those intervening years? Did you always have a suspicion? Was that lingering in that time? I think there was ambiguity there because it just, it didn't make sense to us. But I think we all, certainly my dad, my sister, my mom's family, I, I think we all had our different grieving processes and it, it had happened so suddenly it was hard to make sense of. And I, I think for me personally, I couldn't process kind of all the complexity there. I needed to, you know, rather than asking a lot of questions, doing exploration, engaging conversations, I, I think I needed to really just take care of kind of my primary grief and figuring out how to exist with her not present. And it's been a real evolution at different stages of my life, what my capacity, willing, interest has been 
to go back in time and to try and make sense of things, to have different kinds of conversations with my family members, with people who knew my mom well, to go back to that history. And, you know, it it hasn't been until more recent years that I have felt more able to do that in a way that, that feels healthy, in a way that feels connecting, in a way that feels meaningful as opposed to just overwhelming. Yeah. Oh, I appreciate so much about what you said there, including just the way in which you your grief and your relationship with grief, because that's sort of how I think about grief is we're sort of in a relationship, we're in a long-term relationship with grief. You've allowed it and it's allowed you or what, however you want to say it to sort of shift how you engage with it, what it feels like, what you're ready to take on or learn or where you're able to feel connected or not to that. And just to clarify, of course, there's so many losses and really every loss, I think, when we think about death loss is nonsensical. So The challenge of grief work is we're trying to comprehend the incomprehensible. So that question wasn't about like, well, how did you get to that sense-making place? It's really to make visible again, I think, the ways in which part of the, the scariness and the struggle and the messiness of our grief is that we are, our body brain is trying to make sense of something that just doesn't make sense, regardless of how the loss happened, by the way, because to be in the world without a parent just doesn't make sense, even though we intellectually know someday most of us are going to face that, we're going to get to that place. So, yeah. No, and illness doesn't make sense. I mean, all, all sorts of causes of death do not make sense. Exactly. I'm curious, because you had shared your mom had chosen over the loss of her friend to kind of be silent about it. You are now grown. Your siblings presumably were grown. What did you see about your dad's grief that was maybe similar or different to how your mom was sort of modeling grief at that time? How were you? I know you said everybody in your family had different grief styles, which again, reminder to the audience is true of pretty much every family. And there aren't good or bad grief styles. They're just difference. And some kind of come into conflicts and have us judging one another, but they're just different. How was your dad's grief style compared to yours, for instance? Well, it makes me think of, you know, when you talk about your reasons for having this, this podcast, the fact that we are kind of so not fluent in the language of grief. And for me, I I think it's really taken years of professional training as a psychologist and conversations, years of conversations about grief to give me that kind of fluency to talk about grief. So when I when I think about in my immediate family, us trying to have those conversations, I think it was really hard for all of us to use language. Because you don't have a shared language. No, yeah. no. And I think there's also that dynamic too, where we were all trying to protect each other and make it easier for each other. But the unintended consequence is that then you're all kind of isolated and left alone in your grief. Yeah. Oh, that's such an important point. And again, this isn't a judgment about anybody, but I think what you just described happens so often in families This actually happens, you probably can talk about this later too. I think a lot of times kids, besides grieving differently just because of the developmental phases that they're in, kind of mute their grief because they're worried they're going to make their 
maybe surviving parent worry, et cetera. And so we all do this dance where we don't want to be too much or too big or have too many feelings and have the opposite impact really in a way, usually. Yeah. And I see it in couples and in partnerships all the time as well. I mean, I, I work in the oncology setting and so all the time, you know, I'm having these one-on-one conversations with either the person in treatment or their partner. And they're saying, here's what I'm worried about. Here's what I'm thinking about. But I, I don't, I don't want to make my partner upset by sharing that. Exactly. And, And you know, two people are really suffering, but aren't able to feel as connected in their suffering out of a desire to to caretake each, each other. Yeah. yeah. So interesting. So I just recorded last season, my listeners will remember, I had the oh, incredible honor of getting to know a young woman with colon cancer. Christina Bain came on my show to talk about her chronic cancer. And it was such a beautiful conversation. She passed away February of 2020. And just last week, I had her husband come record a conversation, which will have been out by the time this conversation airs. And he shared a story, a very similar thing near the end when she was in hospice. He found out after her death, he could see very clearly, you know, the weight loss and everything that was sort of coming. He didn't say anything to her because I asked if you had conversations. She called her father to say, it's coming. And he didn't find out till after. And he said, I didn't say anything to her because I didn't want to make her feel scared or sad. And she clearly didn't say anything to him because she didn't want him to worry or feel sad. And although I think they have a beautiful relationship and right up to the end, we end up inadvertently disconnecting ourselves in these places where we're coming from usually a beautiful place of not wanting to burden the other person. But the consequences of not burdening somebody means we can distance ourselves from one another. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. When we come back, Lizzie opens up about how the news that her mom's death was by suicide, not by accident, shifted her own experience of grief. We go on to explore how that influenced her studies in the field of psychology, which were already underway at the time. I'm your host, Lisa Kiefhofer. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast with my guest, Lizzie Cleary. Don't forget, if you want to keep up with the latest on the show, make sure you're subscribed on your favorite podcast platform. And if you want some behind the scenes news, the latest on my work with individuals, companies, the scoop on the book I'm writing, same name as the show, and so much more, visit www.lisakiefoffer.com. That's Lisa, K-E-E-F-A-U-V-E-R.com. And sign up for my not-so-regular newsletter. Why not-so-regular? Well, because grief isn't on a schedule and neither is this newsletter. So you had those four years, you and your dad, your siblings of trying to comprehend the incomprehensible, always maybe wondering in the back of your mind, is there something that you recognize shifted in your grief, the quality or the emotions or the embodiment of your grief once that confirmation came that it was in fact death by suicide and not an accident? It's a great question. I don't know. I mean, I I think in some ways it kind of deepened my 
sadness because in addition to my own grief, there was now, I don't know, in some ways kind of my mom's grief and suffering as well, you know, that, you know, just recognizing that she had been suffering. And for us, this was really unexpected. I I know every situation is different, but I, I think for some people who die from suicide, there may be prior suicide attempts, there may be a known history of depression or trauma. For us, this was really unexpected. So I think it really made me reconsider and revisit who my mom was, what she felt, what had been the experiences of her life. So it it gave me a new set of things to be grieving for, for her. Mm. For the grief she must have felt to end up being in the position she was. for her suffering. I've heard this in conversation with friends and with clients who have experienced this particular kind of loss, which is also maybe the grief of recognizing that there were aspects about their person that they didn't know. Like they're grieving in a way, not just the person being gone, but like that person had been in my life and now I'm recognizing there was a piece of them that I didn't see. Yes. Does that make sense? Was that something you experienced? Yeah, I think that resonates and it, right, it it pulls you into a set of questions, a set of revisiting the experiences that you had, right, the experiences that I I had with my mom with a new lens or perspective of, right, how did she experience them? How was she feeling? So I I do think, yeah, that there is a recognition that I didn't know her fully in that way because there was this aspect of suffering that was unseen by me. Yeah. Thank you, first of all, for sharing Sylvia with us and her adventurous spirit and her love of the environment and also just helping move, I hope, the conversation forward where we're all a little more comfortable being honest and thoughtful and vulnerable about the complexities of all kinds of losses. Of course, that's the mission of this show. I think too, with death from suicide, I, I think there's there certainly can be stigma there in terms of talking about it, in terms of people receiving support. I know in, in situations, there also can be kind of a double stigma of if there was mental illness present, if there was addiction, if there was trauma, all of those things can be, make it more difficult to talk about the loss, make it more difficult to receive support around the loss. And when I talk to people about grief, I really normalize the fact that I have not talked to a single person who is grieving, who doesn't have some regret, some self-blame, And this can be everything from, I wish we had taken that last trip to... I didn't get to say goodbye, or I yelled at him the last time I saw him. Exactly. Am I sure they were getting the best care they could have gotten? I mean, all all sorts of things. But I think specific to death by suicide, right, there's the questions of why did this happen? And is there anything I could have done to prevent it? And I will just share to that second point, something, a single 
sentence or question that has been so helpful to me is the question, if there was something you could have done, would you have done it? And I think the automatic response is yes, absolutely. And then the logic follows, then there wasn't something you could have done because if there was, you would have done that thing. It's such a simple logic, but I I think it really offers compassion to the fact that there are things that are just out of our control. Beyond our control. Yeah. Absolutely. And we, we do the best that we can, but we aren't in control of it all. Yeah. Oh, that question you just asked. Thank you for taking us through that question and that answer. So profoundly impactful. That just even made me feel sort of a, I felt awash a little bit with a little more self-compassion for even the questions that reside in my own mind over my own loss. And I hope the listeners can also be taking that in and applying it again, whether it was death by suicide or any kind of loss, to kind of offer ourselves grace and compassion and be able to set that down. And to your point, really what you're talking about, and when we think about these sort of stigmatized experiences of losses or just stigmatized experiences in general, we think about trauma or mental health issues, that disenfranchisement of grief that is really what you're talking about, it's another layer on top of our grief illiteracy. So I think we're all in some ways a little disenfranchised in our grief because of the sort of grief illiterate culture that we are a part of. But I think there are certain kinds of losses, including what you experienced with your mom, that is sort of a next level of disenfranchisement. So I love that you named that and offered us into the conversation so that we can sort of, I don't know if this is a word, re-enfranchise our own grief. So you were already on the way to pursuing a career in psychology, right? At the time of your mom's death. So I asked this because some people myself included, end up in the helping professions very specifically as a result of something that happened in their personal lives. I ended up being a social worker many, many years ago because of a trauma I experienced as a teen and the lack of good care I got from the mental health community that always stuck in my head. And I was like, I'm going to go out there and do it differently, you know, but you were already on this path. So I wonder even as you got your degree and tell us a little bit about what career you launched into, do you think there are ways in which Sylvia, your mom's experience, what you experienced with your mom influenced even the education in the field that you got into? Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. I think there are absolutely connections and influences there. I think in many ways, yeah, I grew up in a household where I think I was very aware of the feelings and emotions of those around me. And, you know, I'm sure part of that was just innate. And part of that too was probably just picking up on and and feeling some of the internal experiences around me. But I got into psychology. I, m- I remember just looking through the course catalog, which when I was there was all hardback as opposed to digital, and just thinking, reading these course titles and, and just thinking, oh, this sounds so fascinating to to study things like personality and the human mind. And so, you know, those were all the courses that just drew me in. And I took a fantastic health psychology course that actually brought us into different healthcare settings and, you know, had no prior 
knowledge of health psychology as a discipline or field. This was at the kind of height of Lance Armstrong as hero. Mm. And I remember reading his autobiography, memoir, and just being so intrigued by the story of his experience with cancer and all the ways that he identified thriving, you know, post-traumatic growth after that experience. So I went to graduate school at UCLA to study with a, a really wonderful health psychologist. All of her work is in oncology, coping and adjustment with cancer, and was really drawn by this question of how can people go through an experience as life-changing as a cancer diagnosis and end up having experiences across the whole spectrum from the most traumatic of experiences and you know mental health wise perhaps the development of PTSD depression anxiety real suffering and others who end up finding different sense of purpose or meaning, strengthening their relationships, having newfound sense of spirituality, just the whole spectrum of there. How can we as providers help shift and support and reduce some of the, the suffering and increase the potential for positive outcomes. So drawn in really for those kind of research questions. And the more that I got into the work, you know, recognized that I'm really a clinician at heart and love the real, you know, human interaction and, and conversation. And ultimately, for me, the oncology experience is one of loss. I think from the second someone receives a diagnosis of cancer, there is immediate loss and in so many different forms and shapes. So I, I think there is loss and I think there is also meaning making. And those two themes for me are just the most the most meaningful to me. And I think the grief piece, I think my own experiences with grief make make me very comfortable being with other people's grief, knowing how to respond to that. And it just ended up being kind of the exact fit for me. And yeah, just what I find, the conversations that I find most meaningful to have. So, well, that's so fascinating. And I do want to explore because I know you and I've touched on this before in our conversations off the air a little bit about sort of the good, the bad and the ugly, maybe of the post-traumatic growth way of thinking, maybe some of the, the helpfulness and hurtfulness. But before we go there, I just want to draw out a little bit more at the time when you started in the field, kind of as a researcher and clinician to now, how have you seen practitioners' understanding of grief and loss, practitioners' understanding of comfort with grief and loss, shifting sort of in their interactions with patients and patient families. I, I ask this because, of course, I've had lots of guests on the show who work in hospice and palliative care, different, different places. I go in, I've been lucky enough to be invited in to do some education with residents and, and medical colleges. And I think traditionally people are trained to see, you know, 
it's the colon or the breast or the body part or the whatever it is is that is the suffering. And of course, we want our brain surgeons to be great surgeons of brains, and we want our specific kinds of oncology practitioners to be super knowledgeable in those specific ways of maybe treating or even curing the cancer in, in the case of oncology. And sometimes we're lucky enough to have a social worker or a psychologist for every 50 doctors or something in the system. So so grief and loss, certainly, I've heard from doctors along the way, was not a part of their really education or their comfort language. What did you see when you first got into the field in terms of who was even using that language, who was even looking at their patients and understanding, huh, maybe they're experiencing anticipatory grief or other kinds of losses versus kind of what you're seeing now is... I guess I'm asking, is there hope? Has there been, <laughs> is there, has there, is there hopefully? Yes. Has there been growth or shifts as you've seen over the course of your practice, over the course of your career? I do think there have been growths and shifts and an increasing awareness that part of real comprehensive, compassionate care does need to involve support for people's emotional experience. I, I think that is that was a premise that had to be proven and, and had to be kind of experienced. And I think it's taken, you know, the past 30, 40 years to get to the point where we not only have so much of the patient's experience and feedback about the importance of that, we also have a lot of research to support the benefits of that. And you know, in terms of practical practical terms, when I started working at UCLA's Cancer Center, we had a few integrative programs. So for example, breast cancer specifically, patients would come in and would meet members of a multidisciplinary team. So you would have an oncologist, a surgeon, a radiologist, genetics counselor, and psychologist, social worker, chaplain, as part of your team, and that would be a full meeting with everyone. That model, the model of kind of a, we call it an integrative practice unit, I think that is becoming more common, and we're seeing that in more across the different cancer types. So I, I think, you know, recognizing that it's important to have a mental health provider as part of your medical team and access to that. And the more the more conversation, the more collaboration that we as mental health professionals have with other medical providers, I, I think the more appreciation, the more fluency, the more language recognition, the more comfort seeing and talking about these sorts of issues of grief and loss, yeah, all of that, I think, starts to become more comfortable to the rest of the medical team as well. Yeah. Well, thank you for giving me a little hope there. So th there, there is shift and change there. I know. I ask this a lot. I've had a pediatric palliative social worker on my show a few times and some others. And I think historically, and also, by the way, let me just pause and say, if you're a doctor or a nurse or somewhere on the medical side of caregiving here, Oh, we appreciate you and what you're delivering to our patients and their families are incredible. And I recognize as part of most of their training, this aspect of a patient care wasn't delivered. So how can you deliver something you haven't been taught about or practiced or encouraged to? Like that's not what the reward system is 
generally speaking. So I just wanted to do a little side note to the doctors and the nurses and other medical clinicians out there. I, I, I appreciate that. But when I've had conversations, one of the things that I've learned is it's not just that the inadvertent sometimes harm by the lack of knowledge that can happen, like not talking to somebody about like what's the consequences maybe of you being able to ever conceive or get pregnant and the loss is there to just the psychological loss of maybe losing a body part or having a scar or whatever. So like the absence of those communications can harm a patient, but also the ways in which often systems end up sort of pathologizing people's anger or curiosity or, or asking for a pause before we move forward because you as the clinical team see like, hey, we got to go in and do this thing. And this softening that can needs to happen to give, you know, the patient and the patient's family a time to just like be angry, by the way, which is normal, not pathological, to be curious, to ask questions, to maybe push back, you know, in a way just to make sure you're getting that information. And the more people on the team, even if they don't feel super skilled at those conversations, if they can at least recognize that that's a normative response to all this series of losses those families are facing, then I think we're in a much better place. Yes. And to have access to resources and referrals so that that those medical professionals who do have a real focus on treatment and their job at hand, that they also feel like they're able to to do something with those concerns, you know, certainly to to validate, to normalize, to recognize them in the moment, but then to not feel helpless with, you know, what they do next, but to be able to have places to turn to other colleagues to enlist in providing that sort of care. Yeah, I love that. And I appreciate you pointing that out because the moral distress I can imagine of a care provider who doesn't feel like that they have, I can have only carried this so far, but there's no one to pass the baton to in terms of helping provide comprehensive support that can, I imagine, feel so distressing. So I appreciate this movement and growth and integrative. I recognize too that we're still in a health insurance system and the health system that really pushes back against a lot of this, but I do see it coming up in different, the Livestrong Cancer Institute's COM model here, for instance, has that kind of comprehensive care. So yeah, I really appreciate you taking us across kind of like maybe the growth of, of what's shifted in particular in oncology, but I could imagine this integrative approach is across more domains than just oncology, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's starting to become more the standard of care, but it does take time and willingness and resources. So <laughs> moving in the right yes. direction, but not, yeah. not fast enough. Yeah. When we come back, Lizzie helps us understand the notion of post-traumatic growth and how it came to be more common in our everyday language. From my own narrative therapy training as a social worker and her positive psychology training, we also explore how understanding this phenomenon can be extremely helpful and the risks involved as it can sometimes add unnecessary pressure to move on or get over it already. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast with my guest, Lizzie Cleary. Over the past three seasons, I've been so touched by every single note in my inbox and all the reviews pouring in on Apple Podcasts from listeners just like you. I wanted to share a note I got recently from a listener named Katie. 
She said, I came to the podcast from a link in another newsletter last fall or early winter when you interviewed John Powell and quickly proceeded to work my way through the rest of the back episodes, re-listening to many of them multiple times and taking something new from them each time. Listening to your conversations has enabled me to articulate my own grief more precisely, has helped me show up and keep showing up for three close people in my life who are navigating the most significant losses of their lives. And it's helped me talk openly about grief and loss at home with my young kids, as well as at work with my colleagues. It's also been a big piece of getting me back to therapy. Your conversations have been nothing short of transformative for me, and I'm confident I'm not the only one. So if you're ever questioning whether your time and energy is worth it, rest confident that your work is rippling in ways beyond your imagination. Thank you for the work you do and your practice of holding space for others. You're a gift to the world. Katie. Wow. Thanks, Katie, for taking the time to write me that note. And thanks to all the listeners who take time to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. If you love the show, it's taught you something, it's meaningful to you. Please head over to Apple Podcasts after today's show and leave your own rating and write your own review. So speaking of growth, I touched on earlier, and you and I have talked a little bit about the development of this notion of post-traumatic growth in the psychology field and the mental health field. And I've certainly used that language both in applying to my own traumas and my own losses, but also with clients when I was more traditional therapist in the over the years and even in the work I do now as a grief guide. Can you help set the stage for those who don't know, first of all, sort of what is the definition of post-traumatic growth? And then I want to sort of unpack, as I said, the good, the bad, and the ugly of, (laughs) of um, how we might change our relationship or our thinking about that. So how would you describe post-traumatic growth? Yeah. So the term post-traumatic growth was coined in the 90s by two researchers, Tadeshi and Calhoun, and they conceptualized it in five different domains, but kind of overarching the idea that it's a very high percentage of us who will experience at least one traumatic life event. And that there, for many people, after that traumatic event with time and with appropriate support and setting, and we we will talk about that, there is the possibility for more positive outcomes as well. They talk about positive changes in one's relationship to others, recognition of personal strength, the possibility of increases in appreciation for life, positive spiritual changes or deepening, and a sense of new or different possibilities in terms of how someone is spending their time, energy, effort. So those are kind of the... Yeah, dimensions that they identified. There are other models, stress-related growth model, adversarial growth model, but basically all of them kind of posit that you can experience positive change after a traumatic life event. Yeah. Oh, there's so much in there that I want to dig into here. And I, But just to kind of set the context, that's happening in the 90s, which is happening 10, 20 years after we really started to even have the diagnosis, right, of post-traumatic stress disorder. Or, I mean, that it came more into the mainstream when we think about Vietnam vets returning home and some of those things. So we sort of went like 
from not recognizing really or understanding sort of trauma at all to sort of having this at least guidepost to help understand what happens in people when their trauma is not healed, addressed, treated. And then we sort of evolve to this, oh, but wait a minute, there can be some good outcomes sort of across the span. Yes, exactly. And and kind of in infancy too of, of positive psychology as a field and recognizing that so much of the history of psychology has really focused on distress and suffering and quote unquote, kind of abnormal. And deficit sort of minded. Yeah. Deficits, exactly, specific symptoms, but recognizing how much benefit there is to also understanding the quote, positive side of, of human psychology and well-being as well. And really being on the lookout for assets versus deficits. I mean, in social work kind of feels that was sort of strength-based models. You know, I think about the kind of things that I learned about way back in the day in graduate school. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about how you've seen that in play in your practice, but also maybe the conversations around, I can imagine that that evolution of post-traumatic growth felt a relief to some and exciting to some, but also maybe where are the risks or the dangers in my mind? What I'm I'm thinking about already is I think the pendulum swung a little bit because we went from sort of, you know, pathology, if you think about Freudian, all you know, like what is wrong with everybody and that sort of deficit-based mind thinking. And I feel culturally in the helping fields, we've swung to this toxic positivity world. You know, Susan David, I think about, you know, sort of talks about that toxic positivity, maybe more even at the cultural level, a little less at the sort of in the psychology and mental health fields. I personally think there's some sweet spot in between of those two, because I think there is a harm. So what have you seen in terms of the usage of post-traumatic growth? And when did you start to think about Hmm, I wonder if there are some challenges or risks with our maybe overuse, because really, I think that's the problem is we latch onto one thing and then we try to apply it to everything and then it gets a little hijacked. Yeah. I think it's fascinating to study it as kind of a naturally occurring phenomenon and to understand what can we learn from its presence? What can we learn from people who genuinely experience these sorts of changes. I think where I get ambivalent is when you think about the impact of kind of the narratives and when they become expectations about what should someone who goes through something traumatic end up looking like, feeling like after the experience. And I think that's, I think those expectations is when you run the risk of getting into toxic positivity or just unrealistic, unhelpful expectations about what loss should do to us, what grief should do to us, what trauma should do to us. And clinically, I never would want someone to feel like they had to turn something traumatic and painful into good, that that was a responsibility in any way. So I think clinically, I think about how do we not reinforce those expectations while also holding the possibility for someone to experience, right, feeling closer to their loved ones, feeling appreciative for aspects of the life that they have 
without feeling any sort of push in that direction. Oh, that's so beautiful. Expectations, that's the word I'm really held by when you said that, which is how can we hold the possibility and the recognition that post-traumatic growth does happen and not have it be communicated as an expectation while also offering it as a possibility. And I think as a clinician, I've even navigated kind of like, that means when am I even bringing up these possibilities? What language am I using with somebody? What period along the continuum or the timeline of their loss or of their trauma, is it even appropriate? And the sorry, everybody, the truth is there isn't one right amount of time or there isn't like one clue. We're kind of stumbling our way through. I'll say I have had, I would say two, well, I've had more than two, but two significant traumatic losses. And it took me time after both of them, quite a bit of time to really get to the place where I recognized growth. I do think I have deeper relationships. I do have a different spiritual connection. I do show up really in the world with delight and amazement in ways that I hadn't previously, but I didn't get there. I sat in the suck for a long freaking time and I railed against the world and the injustice. And if anyone had suggested... Oh, I would have told them to, it's my show. I would have told them to fuck off for sure. Exactly. And so I appreciate that. It's just funny. I'm going to give my mom a shout out here. When I was, as I said, I was raped when I was 15. I survived a trauma. And years later, after going through some not so good therapists, hashtag why I became a social worker later on. But after I'd done some growth in my teens, my mom said to me, not necessarily about that event. She said, when I was trying to grapple with and make meaning and figure out how to show up in the world again and renew my identity as a you know, emerging woman, and especially with this particular trauma that I experienced, she told me about this she said, this is just, anytime anything hard happened after that, she would say, this is just an AFCO. And I said, what's that? And she said, this is just another fucking growth opportunity. And that has been a motto I've lived by since I was basically 15. It's literally tattooed on my body. And I think, though, the the brilliance of what my mom was sharing with me, besides having a fun little acronym, and who doesn't love a mom who swears, is it's not that bad things happen so you grow from them. And that you, as you said, the expectation that you have to, it's like bad things happen. And when you're ready, can you look at it and say, where is the growth opportunity in this? Which is as clinicians, kind of what we're doing when we're introducing this kind of post-traumatic growth is just like that thing happened. Let's sit in this suck. Let's recognize that. Let's rail against it. Let's feel it. The risk, I think, I'd be curious to know what you've seen, is when we introduce the kind of AFCO or the post-traumatic growth too early, then there is either a reaction to then suppress or stuff all of the emotional responses that we need to exercise in a way to get out of us because we think, oh, well, I got to just get there. And also, it sounds like a good place to be. I'd rather be there than be sitting in the suck. Exactly. So we either sort of stuff it down or then we feel compoundedly worse, like we're somehow failing at this thing that we should be able to do. What have you found in terms of that timing and navigating and the when you've seen it go right or wrong, maybe even? I mean, right. I think you described so well what can happen when it goes wrong. I think this is a really interesting part of the theories behind post-traumatic growth. So Tadeshi and Calhoun point to 
five different things that they say can help facilitate post-traumatic growth. And these are education, emotion regulation, disclosure, narrative development, and service. And those don't have to come in any particular order, but I, I think it's interesting disclosure. I mean, being able to comfortably, safely talk and share about the experience. And have someone hold space for you when you do that. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. That feels like a prerequisite. Emotion regulation, the fact that we cannot grow from a place where we are so overwhelmed by anger, sadness, guilt, despair. I mean, we we have to tend to those emotions first and give them the airtime and the space and the response that they need, creating education. So being able to even understand the impact of our experience and to see some of the possibility for growth as well, narrative development, to have our experience make sense and to understand to our role in that. So this idea of developing a, a sense of personal strength, I, I think it's important that, that people have time to understand this thing happened to me and here is how I responded to it. Here is how I persevered through it. Here is how I still continue to show up in my life despite this experience. So developing that narrative and exploring what service could look like if that feels like something genuine and that someone is called to do. So I, again, I don't think any of these are, you know, that there's a specific order, but I do think there are some things that have to be successfully tended to first before someone could move naturally into growth. And that is so important, what you said, first of all, that there's not an order and, you know, that you're just checking off a list and boy, do we love a, you know, to-do list or a checklist, but also that there are some things we have to do first. And those five pieces really are also, I just think about how we move through grief, not just towards post-traumatic growth, is that like recognizing our emotions and giving space to them, but then also learning the tools of emotional regulation, recognizing that no emotion is ever going to stay. So we can give it space because we know it has to sort of be seen and then move along. But yeah, and then to think about the fact that those are the components that allow us to move forward in our lives to gain some sense of agency, some sense of purpose. I particularly love the narrative piece, of course, because I'm a narrative therapist by training. And, and I do think that that storytelling, which we can't do in the beginning, you know, I think sometimes there's just like this buck up mentality, like, it's going to be okay. I'm going to be strong. Like we try to, and people try to do this for us, kind of hurry us through, you know, that's why would people say stupid shit, like everything happens for a reason. And you, I had someone tell me like the day after my husband died, you're young and pretty, you'll find love again. People try to rush us into those narratives. And I think we can't skip that step. So while there isn't an order, I would say we can't get to the the rewriting of our narrative until we've done some of that 
disclosing and that emotional regulation and and really being held and seen and giving space to our emotions. So yeah, I appreciate that. Well, and this this is kind of a half-baked metaphor that's coming into mind, but I, I just think this is a place where I think we can't be leading someone. Like this is a race that they're running, a walk that they're taking at their own pace. And I see us as actually one step behind and being a supporter, like handing the water bottle, handing the snack, occasionally maybe saying, oh, I I see a rock ahead. Like, let me see if we can take a detour there. But I, I just, I don't think we can pull or push someone here. I agree. And that's, there's a risk, I think. Not only can't we do it, but I think the harm that can happen when we do, which I think is traditionally again, culturally, but also in mental health is like, oh, you have to be able to fix people. I don't know about your training, but you know, right. Thankfully, I went to a school that was very sort of narrative postmodern. And we had that ethos of like, you are always just a collaborator or a companion. We never called our clients clients, even in our training, because that had a kind of expectation that we had some expertise. And while we do have knowledge, I call myself a grief guide because I do think to your metaphor is particularly when we're thinking about post-traumatic growth, all we can do is be a guide. Periodically sort of get out the map and say, oh, I've seen people go this way, or let's take a moment to pause and reflect and look back at where we've come on this path, which I think is a superly important therapeutic tool that we can all use in our lives. When we feel sort of stuck in the muck, we can kind of look up and back and recognize where we've come from. So that's really interesting. Is there any kind of lessons learned or aha moments you've had with clients around introducing this notion of post-traumatic growth or being a guide that you feel like were like important lessons in your career? I think what the work looks like, I do think it is more about pointing out what is naturally happening and noticing that as opposed to, yeah, trying to make anything happen or trying to, you know, suggest ideas, which I I think would just, again, either fall flat or even worse, really be invalidating to kind of be one more voice that's suggesting, let's make something good come out of this. In your not okayness, and we just have to get you to somewhere else. Yes, and we need we need to hurry this along exactly because you know we've been we've been grieving too long and now we got to get to the redemption part of things which by the way i will say sometimes comes from the clients themselves so it's not just also i think our training or the cultural expectations to hurry up and get better and be happy in our toxic positivity land but clients and i I'm certain as a client, I've been a client myself and seeking support, of course, across the course of my lifetime. I think sometimes when we're in our deep pain, we are desperate for someone to kind of yank us forward or pull us along that path. And I think to the fellow clinicians who are listening out there, the reminder is, and by the way, I think this is true for lay people, caretakers, friends too, not just, of course, people in a more clinical setting. But I think the invitation is to not get sort of sucked into that, to recognize that and honor that and empathize with that need to be pulled forward, but also to regulate slowing down and being present to whatever is versus getting caught up in the energy and the fury of trying to move forward too quickly. Oh, Lizzie, this conversation has been 
so meaningful to me, so insightful. I've learned so much. I know for sure our listeners have learned so much. I know for sure also that this will not be the last conversation we have on these topics. Yes. Well, and I said to you, Lisa, I mean, you are just such an amazing guide for these conversations. So I was just so excited to see where you would guide us. And you and I could have talked about so many different things for so many different hours, but I'm delighted that we got to talk today about the things that we did. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time, for your vulnerability, for your insight and wisdom, for offering such a generative conversation today. I really appreciate you. Thank you for joining me on Grief as a Sneaky Bitch. Thank you. I'm so grateful for Lizzie Cleary for opening up and teaching us both from her personal experiences of loss, but also from her professional wisdom too. And special shout out to her longtime friend and former guest of the show, Marissa Renee Lee for introducing the two of us. As you could likely tell from our conversation today, we have a lot in common. So I imagine this might not be the last time you hear from her. I want to thank, as always, Guile Smith of Alafia Sounds for creating the music for today's episode and that team over at Studio Pod Media for helping me produce it. And most importantly, I want to thank you, my listeners, for listening to my conversation today on Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast with Lizzie Cleary. Until next time, I see you, I hear you, and I'm holding you in my heart.